Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutics Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. Today's episode is part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners. My name is Zachary Stacy, and I'm a clinical pharmacy specialist at Barnes Jewish West County Hospital in St. Louis, and I'll be your host today. With me today is my friend, Dr. Snehal Bott, who is a professor of pharmacy practice at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences University. Dr. Bott is a fellow in the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, an associate of the American College of Cardiology, and a board-certified pharmacotherapy specialist with added qualifications in cardiology. Dr. Bott is a national expert in cardiology and specializes in anticoagulation. And if you would like, you can follow Dr. Bott on Twitter at SnakeHardsPharmD. This episode is sponsored by Janssen Pharmaceuticals. This podcast series focuses on peripheral arterial disease and is for informational purposes only and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional podcasts on this topic are also available. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Bott. Thanks, Zach. It's a pleasure to be here. That was a a very gracious introduction. I might have to have you in the room when I negotiate my next faculty contract because that was quite <laughs> glowing. <laughs> no, no problem. Just give me a call. On our previous podcast, we've talked about the epidemiology, pathophys, screening, and the important factors to consider when looking at risk factors for PAD. And today we're going to focus on the management of PAD. So what are some of our guideline approved or FDA approved medications that we see in our PAD patients? Yeah, that's a that's a really good place to start. It's a that's a good question. And you know, it you mentioned the guidelines, and at least on our side of the pond, those guidelines really have not been updated in a number of years. But at the same time, uh, a lot of the foundational concepts in the management of peripheral arterial disease really haven't changed. And so I assume in the past, you've probably talked about smoking cessation and how important that is. That's probably the greatest single intervention that we can make for patients with PADs, get them to stop smoking. Certainly, you know, statin therapy is part of either primary or secondary prevention. And then as we start thinking about antiplatelet therapy and other studied or, or foundational therapies in PAD, I guess we should probably start with aspirin. You know, I know okay. that aspirin's had somewhat of a, a, um, a revolution on the coronary side, especially in primary prevention, but on the peripheral arterial side, it still is a foundational therapy, especially in patients with asymptomatic PAD. I know that, you know, the, the recent guidelines we have with the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, interchange clopidogrel and, and aspirin based on the results of the Capri trial from, was it 20 years ago now or close to? <laughs> yeah, close to it. But uh, honestly, I, I can't say that I've really seen a lot of P2Y12 inhibitor use, at least as monotherapy uh, in yeah. patients with PAD. I think that, you know, whether it's cost, whether it's concerns for bleeding risk, I, I think that aspirin has sort of been that foundational 
baseline antiplatelet medication. And usually I, I don't even really see clopidogrel as part of dual antiplatelet therapy either uh, for peripheral arterial disease. I think some of that stems from the Charisma trial, which you know was more of a CAD study, but was was not a positive study. It actually kind of uh, I'm probably going to date myself, but you know, I kind of lived through the the decade of dominance with clopidogrel, and I think about the 2000s as really sort of where clopidogrel just continued to have positive and positive data. But charisma was like the first chink in the armor, so yeah. to speak, uh, of clopidogrel, where it did not have any benefit in CAD patients over aspirin alone. And subsequently, there's been a desire, obviously, to uh, expand the antiplatelet realm, just because even with aspirin, we know that patients progress and they continue to have events. And there really wasn't anything that we had pharmacotherapy wise that would really, that we had confidence in that could modify hard outcomes like cardiovascular, things like MI, stroke, cardiovascular death, limb events. So when you start thinking about symptomatic management of PAD, that's where you start getting into drugs like celostazole and pentoxifilin. And at least of those two, I'd say that, you know, we don't have a lot of great outcome data with either one of them, but celostazole was sort of that second therapy that was usually added on top of aspirin afterwards, at least for a number of years. All right. I always find that, you know, you mentioned the date of the guidelines, and I wouldn't call PAD guidelines in the United States contemporary by any means. I mean, they're lagging somewhat. And I always find it uh, I think our role as educators, either clinical educators or didactic educators, I think, I think our role becomes greater when the distance between current time and the guidelines gets greater and greater. You know, there's so much more literature that's not emphasized in the guidelines. And so to bring people up to speed, I think our role as educators, I think, becomes more important. And as we get newer studies, I, I think it's important that we are, are uh, you know, educating our colleagues what, you know, what these new studies add to the current guidelines. And so, I, you know, the, the previous guidelines, you know, talk a lot about aspirin and the role of clopidogrel. And, you know, aspirin, as you mentioned, its, its role has been time and tested. It's, you know, it's, it's been one of our foundational agents. One thing that often gets debated is the dose of aspirin. And, and I think we've looked at doses from, you know, 50 milligrams up to 1,500 milligrams. Where, where do we land in PAD? What, what's the current dose recommendation for a PAD patient? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And, you know, I think that at least what we've seen in, in, in our practice, but I think what has been resonating in guidelines in general uh, in the U.S. has been really more advocating lower doses of aspirin, staying away from the full dose, quote unquote, you know, 325. So guidelines are pretty consistent with regards to 75 to 100 or, or low dose aspirin in what guidelines we have. And in the, the clinical studies that have been done since the guidelines were published, looking at a, either comparing versus aspirin or adding on top of aspirin, the dose of aspirin has always been the lower dose of aspirin, which it in the United States, pretty much means 81 milligrams, but yeah. you know, that less than 100, I guess, is probably the, the easiest way to say it. Okay. And I also like, you know, I lived through clopidogrel, good and bad times. It was good for a long time. And the Capri trial is one of those landmark trials that when I think about PAD, it was sort of the, the feather in the cap for clopidogrel. It was, I think, where the evidence uh, came from that suggested 
clopidogrel may be, a, a, you know, an appropriate agent. If you had to summarize, the, you know, that, you know, the outcomes of the Capri trial, how, how would you do so? Yeah, you know, that's a, a really good point. Uh, and to me, it's the it was the PAD subgroup from the Capri trial where there was the greatest magnitude of benefit in cardiovascular outcomes. And I think that really started to ask the question of, you know, how much more potent than aspirin should we be going in PAD patients? Because in that era, in the 90s, it was really only aspirin. And the concept of being able to intensify the antiplatelet regimen or the antithrombotic regimen really wasn't thought of in terms of really providing a benefit. So Capri to me kind of sparks the interest of being able to intensify antithrombotic therapy at a magnitude that either does not increase the risk of bleeding or even if it does, does so in an acceptable manner because the benefit on the MI, stroke, hard outcome side of things is at a greater magnitude than what the bleeding events are. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think the, the PAD cohort in the Capri is really what, for me, you know, sold it. it. It really drove the primary outcome. And I think it really set up nicely a, a controversy in PAD between aspirin and clopidogrel. You know, when you calculate out a number needed to treat and, and with clopidogrel and aspirin in the Capri trial, it comes up to you know, 197 people. And I think then that begs the question of, you know, is that really the right agent when you have to treat 197 people with clopidogrel in order to get one positive benefit that we didn't see with aspirin? You know, it is statistically significant, but then you have to ask it, you know, is it clinically significant? And I think that set up you know, a debate or a controversy in PAD for a long time. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I think that sometimes in 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 cardiology, that isn't necessarily a um, you know a very large number to treat, but certainly it begs the question of, you know, how do you identify those patients who are really going to benefit when you have that broad number needed to treat? So, it, I agree with you there. It definitely leaves us with uh, a lot more gray <laughs> than black and white areas where we can say absolutely yes and absolutely no. So we, we moved past, you know, we, we talked about aspirin, we've talked about clopidogrel. What is the most recent investigation that looks at maybe a different approach? Yeah, that, that's a, 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 I think that's probably been one of the more exciting things in, in this area is that we actually have some really newer data that is informative in, in good and bad ways. And so, you know, like maybe we'll just start with a little bit of history, but, you know, medication that we don't use that much in practice, Vorapaxar, but being a, a thrombin, you know, a platelet-based PAR1 thrombin receptor antagonist set to me an important, from a, a concept standpoint, from a theoretical standpoint, that having thrombin inhibition may actually provide benefit in these types of patients. Now, Vorapaxar was studied on top of DAPT. And the bleeding really, to me, outweighed any magnitude of benefit, but introduces the concept of moving beyond the platelet and maybe thinking about thrombin. And that really sets up to me, I think, probably one of the most impactful studies that has come out in the PAD space is the COMPASS trial with the combination of aspirin and a very low dose of a DOAC, which was rivaroxaban dosed at two and a half milligrams twice a day. Okay. And, and these were PAD patients symptomatic or asymptomatic? Yeah. So, you know, that's a good question. So this was, a Compass was actually a really large study. 
And it was really a, a combination of patients who had coronary disease and patients who had peripheral uh, arterial disease, uh, but they were out of the window of the guidelines or, or guideline-recommended dual antiplatelet therapy. So they were, okay. no longer, they were no longer a Plato study patient or a cure study patient. And so they were basically, if they were on DAPT, they were removed from DAPT because they'd completed a year or they completed a course of therapy. Or these were patients who had primary coronary disease where there was no solid indication for dual antiplatelet therapy. Okay. And in Compass, it's a, a large study. It's 27,000 patients or so. I want to say maybe a little more than 27,000. And everybody got, those are those, sorry, everybody did not get aspirin. So it was three arms. There was the aspirin alone arm, which was dosed at 100 milligrams a day. There was a rivaroxaban alone arm dosed at 5 milligrams twice a day. And then there was this combination arm with low-dose rivaroxaban of 2.5 milligrams twice a day in combination with 100 milligrams a day of aspirin. So you kind of had a dual-strategy arm, but not DAPT. It was low-dose DOAC plus aspirin. You had a low-dose of rivaroxaban, but higher at five twice a day. And then aspirin alone, which was standard of care based on any guideline in patients with you know, coronary disease who were no longer on DAPT or patients who had peripheral arterial disease who were either symptomatic or asymptomatic. So the COMPASS trial is looking at these three arms of care, aspirin by itself, rivaroxaban by itself, and the combination of rivaroxaban and aspirin. And what were their primary outcomes for the COMPASS trial? Yeah, so the, the primary outcome was your standard three-point composite cardiovascular death Myocardial infarction and stroke was the core main primary efficacy endpoint. And then in terms of safety, the uh, primary safety outcome was the Modified International Society uh, on Thrombosis and Hemostasis, or ISTH, definition for major bleeding. And modified, in my opinion, as a positive because it, it took a more broader approach to defining major bleeding than the traditional ISTH major bleed, which is really sort of a, a three-point criteria. So maybe more a, a clinically relevant definition of major bleeding. And, and the, the efficacy outcome really being what, we, what we've seen along, all along in dual antiplatelet therapy studies on the MI side of things, which is that three-point MACE of cardiovascular death, MI, and stroke. And what did they find with, the, I think this is the, the traditional MACE endpoint. What, what did they find with rivaroxaban and aspirin versus aspirin and compass? Yeah, so this is probably where there was a, a lot of buzz and excitement because unlike other studies, this was probably the first study that demonstrated that adding anything on top of aspirin conferred a significant cardiovascular outcome benefit. And to the point that the magnitude of benefit was, was uh, so large, the trial was actually stopped early. It was unethical to continue mm. aspirin monotherapy and, and it was stopped really primarily because of the, the combination therapy arm. So there's, there's a, a couple, I guess, important take-home points before we dive down a little bit deeper. But so the, the main benefit was in the combination therapy arm. So, you know, Rivaroxaban 5-BID by itself compared to aspirin alone, no statistical benefit, suggesting that the anticoagulant alone doesn't really confer anything different than the antiplatelet therapy alone, which was aspirin low-dose aspirin once a day. But 
the combination, so having a little bit of antiplatelet effect plus a little bit of anti-10A slash anti-thrombin effect is where there was a large magnitude of benefit. Like I said, the trial was stopped early with uh, in about essentially two years worth of time. So stopped, uh, I think, uh, at least a year early because of the, the magnitude of the benefit. It became unethical to continue aspirin monotherapy in those patients. And I think really what was surprising to me was not only the, the magnitude. So the, the primary outcome benefit was the event rate was 5.4% in the patients who received aspirin alone versus 4.1% in the patients who were on the dual therapy of rivaroxaban plus aspirin. So a 1.3% absolute reduction in that important endpoint of MACE. But to me, what I think is the most fascinating is, you know, anytime we look at positive outcomes, we always want to look at the individual components, right, to see what right. was actually contributing. And here's where I think there's a little more to the story that I'm not exactly sure how to explain some of it, but I think is fascinating or very interesting. So cardiovascular death was significantly lower in the dual therapy arm. It was a 0.5% absolute reduction with you know, a p-value of 0.02. So that was a significant reduction in cardiovascular death. Stroke was reduced by 0.7%, so 1.6% in the aspirin alone group versus 0.9% in the dual therapy arm. MI was actually non-significantly reduced. It was 2.2% in the aspirin alone versus 1.9% in the patients who were on the dual therapy. So in the right direction, but the p-value was 0.14, and that's because the upper bound 95% conference interval crossed one. It was 1.05. And the reason I say that's interesting is because when we think about when we when we think about the, the classic three-point mace and we think about the addition of therapy on top of aspirin conferring a benefit. So we talked a little bit about, we've talked about clopidogrel a couple times. So the thing about the clopidogrel era or the, the DAPT era, uh, thinking about ticagrelor or even prasagrel, compared to a standard, usually the, the, the entire composite was driven by a reduction in MI and certainly not driven by a reduction in cardiovascular death. And Depending upon the study, maybe a reduction in stroke, but you know, Prasquel, we have to worry about the opposite, you know. And so here it's flipped. There's a reduction yeah. in cardiovascular death. There's a reduction in stroke. But if you're going to be the statistical purist, there was not a reduction in, in myocardial infarction. And so that, to me, I think is hard to explain, but I think provides a lot of food for thought that you know, this dual mechanism maybe doesn't necessarily have to just focus on myocardial infarction. The other events are equally important. And in the PAD, since we're talking about PAD, I think we can just tackle it here. In the PAD subgroup, you know, a lot of the outcome benefit that is important in PAD, things like acute limb ischemia and major amputations were also significantly lowered in the Rivaroxaban plus aspirin group compared to aspirin alone. Now, you know, the event rates may not have been all that large, but, you know, we're talking about a broad patient, a patient population with PAD, but nevertheless, those are important events. You know, when you talk about major amputation and a 0.5% absolute reduction, the way they defined major amputation compass was above the forefoot. So we're not talking digits. <laughs> we're mm -hmm. talking about ankle and higher, right? And that is obviously a for for our patients. That is a significant life-altering event, and to modify that by 0.5% absolute benefit, I think, is a significant step forward. 
as is acute limb events. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we, we want to balance when we talk about the potential benefits of this dual approach to PAD. Um, but we also have to look at the other side of the coin and think about what are we placing our patient at risk for? And that usually comes in the form of bleeding. So if we had to summarize the bleeding impact of dual therapy in PAD patients, what does that look like? Yeah, Zach, that's absolutely a very important point. Thank you for bringing that up. So in Compass, the, the primary definition of ISTH modified major bleeding was increased in the patients who were on the dual therapy uh, rivaroxaban aspirin versus aspirin alone. So the net increase in bleeding, the way they defined it was 1.2% net increase, so 3.1% versus 1.9%. If we look at percent per year, which is maybe a different way to look at it, but it still was a significant increase. It was 1.6% in the dual therapy arm versus 0.9% in aspirin alone. So on an annual basis, a 0.7% increase in the risk of bleeding. So like all things, as we start to stack therapies, there's always going to be that double-edged sword of what's the ischemic benefit versus what's the the price to pay, so to speak, with regards to to major bleeding. So here we do have that double-edged sword. Now, if there's any comfort that we can take with the bleeding data, the main driver of the increase in the ISTH modified major bleeding were because of that broad definition. So if we looked at intracranial hemorrhage or fatal bleeding, that was actually not different between the two arms. It really was driven mostly by the broad definition of major bleeding, transfusions, you know, patients who needed transfusions for a bleeding event after 48 hours of a bleeding episode. So certainly for our patients, those are scary events. And so not to trivialize them by any stretch, that certainly was higher. I believe it was 1% in the rivaroxaban treated patients versus 0.5%. So 0.5% absolute increase in transfusions. As we start getting beyond into like, you know, minor bleeding or broader definitions of bleeding, the numbers start to get higher there. So there is that, there is that double-edged sword. And the investigators in Compass tried to tackle that by looking at what's sometimes used in these, when you have these divergent data sets, is that net clinical benefit. So when you look at the combination of the ischemic endpoints plus the combination of the safety endpoints, we add up all those events. What does it look like? And so in Compass, when they looked at the net clinical outcome of cardiovascular death, stroke, MI, fatal bleeding, and symptomatic bleeding into a critical organ, it was 4.7% in the rivaroxaban plus aspirin-treated patients versus 5.9% in aspirin alone. So the way I try to digest it is, first and foremost, I think we have to recognize that aspirin alone still has a bleeding risk. Right, so aspirin alone isn't a benign therapy. There is bleeding associated with it. Adding rivaroxaban to aspirin is going to increase that bleeding risk. And the, the majority of the, the devastating events that we're going to be worried about by adding a drug like rivaroxaban on top of aspirin doesn't appear to, to be that much uh, of an increase or doesn't, was not significantly increased. But when we look at all bleeding events, not surprisingly, those events are increased in the patients who are on the dual therapy. And this is, uh, rivaroxaban is a medication that, you know, if we would choose to use it in PAD, the aspirin has to be combined with it, correct? That is correct. That's a really good point, right? So when we think about how the FDA ended up approving 
rivaroxaban here, it was only the 2.5 milligram BID dose with aspirin. So can't use it by itself. We don't have any data with this dose plus clopidogrel and dropping aspirin. Uh, it really is, you know, if you're going to actually follow the compass data in a patient with PAD, you should really follow what the study was and what the FDA approved indication is, which would be only the 2.5 milligram BID dose with in the United States with 81 milligrams a day of aspirin. I'd like to thank Dr. Bott today for joining us to talk about peripheral arterial disease and discussing some of the landmark trials. In this last podcast, we've talked about aspirin and clopidogrel, some of the traditional therapies uh, used in peripheral arterial disease. And we've talked about the newest medication that's been FDA approved, rivaroxaban, and its combination with aspirin and some of the potential benefits that it may provide for our patients with PAD. And we also discussed some of the potential risks involved as well. I want to thank you for joining us for our ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.